Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 13. After Dr. Parkhurst departed, a silence lay on the hospital room, heavier and colder than the ice bags that were draped across Junior's midsection. After a while, he dared to crack his eyelids. Pressing against his eyes was a blackness as smooth and as unrelenting as any known by a blind man. Not even a ghost of light haunted the night beyond the window, and the slats of the Venetian blind was as hidden from view as the meatless ribs under death's voluminous black robe. From the corner armchair, as if he could see so well in the dark that he knew Junior's eyes were open, Detective Thomas Vanadium said, Did you hear my entire conversation with Dr. Parkhurst? Junior's heart knocked so hard and so fast that he wouldn't have been surprised if Vanadium, at the far end of the room, had begun to tap his foot in time with it. Although Junior had not answered, Vanadium said, Yes, I thought you heard it. A trickster, this detective, full of taunts and feints and sly stratagems. Psychology warfare artist. Perhaps a lot of suspects were rattled and ultimately unnerved by this behavior. Junior wouldn't easily be trapped. He was smart. Applying his intelligence now, he employed simple meditation techniques to calm himself and to slow his heartbeat. The cop was trying to rattle him into making a mistake, but calm men did not incriminate themselves. What was it like, Enoch? Did you look in her eyes when you pushed her? Vanadium's uninflected monologue was like the voice of a conscience that preferred to torture by droning rather than by nagging. Or doesn't a woman-killing coward like you have the guts for that? Pan-faced, double-chin, half-bald, puke-collecting asshole, Junior thought. No. Wrong attitude. Be calm. Be indifferent to insult. Did you wait until her back was turned? Too gutless even to meet her eyes? This was pathetic. Only thick-headed fools, unschooled and unworldly, would be shaken into confession by ham-handed tactics like these. Junior was educated. He wasn't merely a monsieur with a fancy title. He had earned a full Bachelor of Science degree with a major in Rehabilitation Therapy. When he watched television, which he never did to excess, he rarely settled for frivolous game shows or sitcoms like Gomer Pyle or Beverly Hillbillies, or even I Dream a Genie, but committed himself to serious dramas that required intellectual involvement. Gunsmoke, Bonanza, and The Fugitive. Um, this is me, sorry, breaking in for the first time, and I won't break in too often on this book because it's high not perfect. But I need y'all to see this guy and how he has no idea who he is, but all that he is is steeped in evil, egotism, and white male privilege. Like, even back in the 60s, like, he just thought that he was so, everything he did, he had a reason for it. It's, you know what? Not white male privilege. Male narcissism. I will say that. Male narcissism. Like, nothing he can do is wrong. Everything he does has a reason. He was shocked by his his ability to do this, but then he could convince himself in the very next breath that his wife was trying to poison him while he was murdering her. These things are just so plump and juicy. And I just love to bite into these words, these contradictions that are written with the master's hand. Oh, I love it. Sorry. He preferred Scrabble to all other board games because it expanded one's vocabulary. As a member in good standing of the Book of the Month Club, not the Ratchet Book of the Month Club, but the Book of the Month Club, 
He had already acquired nearly 30 volumes of the finest in contemporary literature, and thus far he had read or skim-read more than six of them. He would have read all of them if he had not been such a busy man with such varied interests. His cultural aspirations were greater than the time he was able to devote to them. Vanadium said, Do you know who I am, Enoch? Thomas Big Butt Vanadium. Do you know what I am? Pimple on the ass of humanity. No, said Vanadium. You only think you know who I am and what I am, but you don't know anything. That's all right. You'll learn. This guy was spooky. Junior was beginning to think that the detective's unorthodox behavior wasn't a carefully crafted strategy, as it first seemed, but that Vanadium was a little wacky. Whether the cop was unhinged or not, Junior had nothing to gain by talking to him, especially in this disorienting darkness. He was exhausted, achy, with a sore throat, and he couldn't trust himself to be as self-controlled as he would need to be in any interrogation conducted by this brush-cut, thick-necked fool. He stopped straining to see through a black room to the corner armchair. He closed his eyes and tried to lull himself to sleep by summoning into his mind's eye a lovely but calculatedly monotonous scene of gentle waves breaking on a moonlit shore. This was a relaxation technique that had worked often before. He had learned it from a brilliant book, How to Have a Healthier Life Through Auto-Hypnosis. Junior Kane was committed to continuous self-improvement. He believed in the need constantly to expand his knowledge and horizons in order to better understand himself and the world. The quality of one's life was solely the responsibility of oneself. The author of How to Have a Healthier Life Through Auto-Hypnosis was Dr. Caesar Zed, a renowned psychologist and best-selling author of a dozen self-help texts, all of which Junior owned in addition to the literature that he had acquired from the book club. When he had been only 14, he had begun buying Dr. Zed's titles in paperback, and by the time he was 18, when he could afford to do so, he'd replaced the paperbacks with hardcovers, and thereafter bought all the doctor's new books in the higher price editions. The collected works of Zed constituted the most thoughtful, most rewarding, most reliable guide to life to be found anywhere. When Junior was confused or troubled, he turned to Caesar Zed and never failed to find enlightenment, guidance. When he was happy, he found in Zed the welcome reassurance that it was all right to be successful and to love oneself. Dr. Zed's death just last Thanksgiving had been a blow to Junior, a loss to the nation and to the entire world. He considered it a tragedy equal to the Kennedy assassination one year previous. And like John Kennedy's death, Zed's passing was cloaked in mystery, inspiring widespread suspicion of conspiracy. Only a few believed that he had committed suicide, and Junior was certainly not one of those gullible fools. Caesar Zed, author of You Have a Right to Be Happy, would never have blown his brains out with a shotgun, as the authorities preferred the public to believe. Would you pretend to wake up if I tried to smother you? asked Detective Vanadium. The voice did not come from the armchair in the corner, but from immediately beside the bed. If Junior had not been so deeply relaxed by the soothing waves breaking on the moonlit beach in his mind, he might have cried out in surprise, might have bolted upright in bed, betraying himself and confirming Vanadium's suspicion that he was conscious. He hadn't heard the cop get out of the chair and cross the dark room. Difficult to believe that any man with such a hard gut slung over his belt, with a bull neck folded over his too tight shirt collar, and with the second chin more prominent than the first, could be capable of such supernatural stealth. I could introduce a bubble of air into your IV needle, the detective said quietly. Kill you with an embolism, and they would never know. Lunatic. No doubt about it now, Thomas Vanadian was crazier than old Charlie Starkwater and Kirill Fugati, the teenage thrill killers who had murdered 11 people in Nebraska and Wyoming a few years back. Something was going wrong in America lately. The country wasn't level and steady anymore. It was tipped. This society was slowly sliding towards an abyss. First, teenage thrill killers, now maniac cops. Worse to come, no doubt. Once a decline set in, halting or reversing the negative momentum was difficult, if not impossible. Tink! The sound was odd, but Junior was almost able to identify it. Tink! Whatever the source of the noise, he was sure Vanadian was the cause of it. Tink! 
Ah, yes, he knew the source. The detective was snapping one finger against a bottle of solution that was suspended from the IV rack beside the bed. Tink! Although Junior had no hope of sleep now, he concentrated on the calming mental image of a gentle wave foaming on moonlit sand. It was a relaxation technique, not just a sleep aid, and he rather desperately needed to stay relaxed. Tink! A harder, sharper snap with the fingernail. Not enough people took self-improvement seriously. The human animal harbored a terrible, destructive impulse that must always be resisted. Tink! When people didn't apply themselves to positive goals, to making better lives for themselves, they spent their energy on wickedness. Then you got Starkwater, killing all those people with no hope of personal gain. You got maniac cops and this new war in Vietnam. Tink! Junior anticipated the sound, but it didn't come. He lay in tense expectation. The moonlight had faded and the gentle waves had ebbed out of his mind's eye. He concentrated, trying to force the phantom sea to flow back into view, but this was one of those rare occasions when the Zed technique failed him. Instead, he imagined Vanadium's blunt fingers moving over the intravenous apparatus with surprising delicacy, reading the function of the equipment as a blind man will read Braille with swift, sure, gliding fingertips. He imagined the detective finding the injection point in the main drip line, pinching it between thumb and forefinger, saw him produce a hypodermic needle as a magician would pluck a silk scarf from the ether. Nothing in the syringe except deadly air, the needle sliding into the port. Junior wanted to scream for help, but he dared not. He didn't even dare to pretend to wake up now, with a mutter and a yawn, because the detective would know that he was faking, that he had been awake all along. And if he had been feigning unconsciousness, eavesdropping on the conversation between Dr. Parkhurst and Vanadium, and later failing to respond to Vanadium's pointed accusations, his deception would be inevitably read as an admission of guilt in the murder of his wife. Then this idiot gumshoe would be indefatigable, relentless. As long as Junior continued to fake sleep, the cop couldn't be absolutely sure that any deception was taking place. He might suspect, but he couldn't know. He'll be left with at least a shred of doubt about Junior's guilt. After an interminable silence, the detective said, Do you know what I believe about life, Enoch? One stupid damn thing or another. I believe the universe is sort of like an unimaginably vast musical instrument with an infinite number of strings. Right. The universe is a great, big, enormous ukulele. The previously flat, monotone voice had now ended a subtle but undeniable new roundness of tone. And every human being, every living thing, is a string on that instrument. And God has 400 billion billion fingers and he plays a really hot version of Hawaiian Holiday. The decisions each of us makes and the acts that he commits are like vibrations passing through a guitar string. In your case, a violin. And the tune is a theme from Psycho. The quiet passion in Vanadium's voice was genuine, expressed with reason but not fervor, not in the least sentimental or unctuous, which made it more disturbing. Vibrations in one string set up soft, sympathetic vibrations in all the other strings, through the entire body of the instrument. Boing! Sometimes these sympathetic vibrations are very apparent, but a lot of the time, they're so subtle that you can hear them only if you're unusually perceptive. Good grief, shoot me now and spare me the misery of listening to this. When you cut Naomi's string, you put an end to the effects that her music would have had on the lives of others and on the shape of the future. You struck a discord that could be heard, however faintly, all the way to the farthest end of the universe. If you're trying to push me into another pukathon, this is likely to work. That discord sets up lots of other vibrations, some of which will return to you in ways you might expect, and some in ways you can never see coming. Of all the things you couldn't have seen coming, I'm the worst. In spite of the bravado of the response in Junior's unspoken half of the conversation, he was increasingly unnerved by Vanadium. The cop was a lunatic, all right, but he was something more than a mere nutcase. I was once doubting Thomas, said the detective, but not from beside his bed any longer. His voice seemed to come from across the room, perhaps by the door, though he had made not a sound as he had moved. In spite of his dumpy appearance, and especially in the dark where appearances didn't count, Vanadium had the aura of a mystic. Although Junior didn't believe in mystics or the various unearthly powers they claimed to possess, 
he knew that mystics who believed in themselves were exceptionally dangerous people. The detective was driven by this string theory of his, and maybe he also saw visions or even heard voices like Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc without beauty or grace. Joan of Arc with the service revolver and the authority to use it. This cop was no threat to the English army as Joan had been, but as far as Junior was concerned, the creep most definitely deserved to be burned at the stake. Now, I'm doubtless, Vanadium said, his voice returning to the uninflected drone that Junior had come to loathe, but that he now preferred to the unsettling voice of quiet passion. No matter what the situation, no matter how naughty the question, I always know what to do, and I certainly know what to do about you. Weirder and weirder. I put my hand in the wound. What wound? Junior wanted to ask, but he recognized bait when he heard it, and he did not bite. After a silence, Vanadium opened the door to the corridor. Junior hoped that he hadn't been betrayed by eye shine in the fraction of a second before he closed his eyes to slits. A mere silhouette against a fluorescent glare, Vanadium stepped into the hall. The bright light seemed to enfold him. The detective shimmered and vanished the way that a mirage of a man on a fiercely hot desert highway will appear to walk out of this dimension into another, slipping between the tremulous curtains of heat as though they were hanging between realities. The door swung shut. Chapter 14 Severe thirst indicated to Agnes that she wasn't dead. There would be no thirst in paradise. Of course, she might be making an erroneous assumption about her sentence at judgment. Thirst would likely afflict the legions of hell, a fierce, never-ending thirst, made worse by meals consisting of salt and sulfur and ashes, nary a blueberry pie, so perhaps she was indeed dead and forever cast down amongst murderers and thieves and cannibals and people who drove 35 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour school zone. It, it, it's me. I'm people. She was suffering from chills, too, and she had never heard that Hades had a heating problem, so perhaps she hadn't been condemned to damnation after all. That would be nice. Sometimes she saw people hovering over her, but they were just shapes, their face without detail, as her vision was blurred. They might have been angels or demons, but she was pretty sure they were ordinary people because one of them cursed, which an angel would never do and they were trying to make her more comfortable, whereas any self-respecting demon would be thrusting lit matches up her nose or jabbing needles in her tongue or tormenting her in some hideous fashion that it had learned in whatever trade school demons attended before certification. They also used words that didn't fit the tongues of angels or demons. Hypodermoclesis, intravenous oxytocin, maintain perfect asepsis, and I mean perfect, at all times. A few oral preparations of ergo as soon as it's safe to give her anything by mouth. More than not, she floated in darkness or in dreams. For a while, she was in the searchers. Her and Joey were riding with the deeply troubled John Wayne, while the delightful David Niven floated along overhead in a basket suspended from a huge, colorful hot air balloon. Waking from a starry night in the Old West into electric light, gazing up into a blur of faces sans cowboy hats. Agnes felt someone moving a piece of ice in slow circles over her bare abdomen. Shivering as the cold water trickled down her sides, she tried to ask them why they were applying ice when she was already chilled to the bone. But she couldn't find her voice. Suddenly, she realized, good lord, that someone else had a hand inside of her, up the very center of her, massaging her uterus in much the same lazy pattern as that made by the piece of melting ice on her belly. She'll need another transfusion. This voice she recognized, Dr. Joshua Nunn, her physician. She had heard him earlier, but hadn't identified him then. Something was very wrong with her, and she tried to speak, but again her voice failed her. Embarrassed, cold, abruptly frightened, she returned to the Old West, where night on the low desert was warm. The campfire flickered welcomely. John Wayne put an arm around her and said, There are no dead husbands or dead babies here. And though he intended only to reassure her, she was overcome by misery until Shirley McLean took her aside for some heart-to-heart -heart girl talk. Agnes woke again and was no longer chilled, but feverish. Her lips were cracked, her tongue rough and dry. The hospital room was softly lighted, and shadows roosted on all sides like a flock of slumbering birds. When Agnes groaned, one of the shadows spread its wings, moved closer to the right side of her bed, and resolved into a nurse. 
Agnes's vision had cleared. The nurse was a pretty young woman with black hair and indigo eyes. Thirsty, Agnes rasped. Her voice was Sahara sand, a braiding ancient stone. The dry whisper of a pharaoh's mummy talking to itself in a vault sealed for 3,000 years. You can't take much of anything by mouth for a few hours yet, said the nurse. Nausea's too great a risk. Retching might start you hemorrhaging again. Ice, said someone on the left side of the bed. The nurse raised her eyes from Agnes to this other person. Yes, a chip of ice would be all right. When Agnes turned her head and saw Maria Elena Gonzalez, she thought she must be dreaming again. On the nightstand stood a stainless steel carafe beaded with condensation. Maria took the cap off the water carafe, and with a long-handled spoon, she scooped out a chip of ice. Cupping her left hand under the spoon to catch drips, she conveyed the shimmering silver to Agnes's mouth. The ice was not merely cold and wet. It was delicious, and it seemed strangely sweet, as if it were a morsel of dark chocolate. When Agnes crunched the ice, the nurse said, No, no, don't swallow it all at once. Let it melt. This admonition, made in all seriousness, left Agnes shaken. If such a small quantity of crushed ice, taken in a single swallow, might cause nausea and renewed hemorrhaging, she must be extremely fragile. One of the roosting shadows might still be death, holding a separate vigil. She was so hot that the ice melted quickly. A thin trickle slid down her throat, but not enough to take Sahara out of her voice when she said, More. Just one, the nurse allowed. Maria fished another chip from the sweating carafe, rejected it, and scooped out a larger piece. She hesitated, staring at it for a moment, and then spooned it between Agnes's lips. Water can to be broken if it will be first made into ice. This seemed to be a statement of great mystery and beauty, and Agnes was still contemplating it when the last of the ice melted on her tongue. Instead of more ice, sleep was spooned into her, as dark and rich as baker's chocolate. Chapter 15 When Dr. Jim Parkhurst made his evening rounds, Junior didn't continue to feign sleep, but asked earnest questions to which he knew most of the answers, having eavesdropped on the conversation between the physician and Detective Vanadium. His throat was still so raw from the explosive vomiting, seared by stomach acid, that he sounded like a character from a puppet show for children on Saturday morning television, hoarse and squeaky at the same time. If not for the pain, he would have felt ridiculous, but the hot and jagged scrape of each word through his throat left him unable to feel any emotion except self-pity. Though he had now heard twice the doctor explain acute nervous amesis, Junior still didn't understand how the shock of losing his wife could have led to such a violent and disgusting seizure. You haven't had previous episodes like this? Parkhurst asked, standing at the bedside with a file folder in his hands, half-lens reading glasses pulled down to the tip of his nose. No, never. Periodic violent amesis without an apparent cause can be one indication of locomotor ataxia. But you know there's symptoms of it. I wouldn't worry about that unless this happens again. Junior grimaced at the prospect of another puke storm. Parker said, We've eliminated most other possible causes. You don't have acute myelitis or meningitis or anemia of the brain. No concussion. You don't have other symptoms of Meniere's disease. Tomorrow, we'll conduct some tests for possible brain tumor or lesion, but I'm confident that's not the explanation either. Acute nervous amesis, Junior croaked. I never thought of myself as a nervous person. Oh, it doesn't mean you're nervous in that sense. Nervous in this case means psychologically induced. Grief, Enoch. Grief and shock and horror. They can have profound physical effects. Ah. Pity warned the physician's ascetic face. You loved your wife very much, didn't you? Cherished her, Junior tried to say, but emotion clotted like a great gob of mucus in his throat. His face contorted with a misery that he did not have to fake, and he was astonished to feel tears spring to his eyes. Alarmed, concerned that his patient's emotional reaction would lead to racking sobs, which in turn might stimulate abdominal spasms and renewed vomiting, Parkhurst called for a nurse and prescribed the immediate administration of diazepam. As the nurse gave Junior the injection, Parker said, You're an exceptionally sensitive man, Enoch. That's a quality to be much admired in an often unfeeling world. 
But in your current situation, your sensitivity is your worst enemy. While the doctor proceeded with his evening rounds, the nurse remained with Junior until it was clear that the tranquilizer had calmed him and that he was no longer in danger of succumbing to another bout of hemorrhagic vomiting. Her name was Victoria Bressler, and she was an attractive blonde. She would have never been serious competition for Naomi because Naomi had been singularly stunning, but Naomi, after all, was gone. When Junior complained of severe thirst, Victoria explained that he was to have nothing by mouth until morning. He would be put on a liquid diet for breakfast and lunch. Soft foods might be allowable by dinner time tomorrow. Meanwhile, she could offer him only a few pieces of ice, which he was forbidden to chew. Let them melt in your mouth. Victoria scooped the small clear ovals, not cubes, but discs, one at a time from the carats on the nightstand. She spooned the ice in the junior's mouth, not with the business-like efficiency of a nurse, but as a courtesan might have performed the task, smiling enticingly, a flirtatious glimmer in her blue eyes, slowly easing the spoon between his lips with such sensuous deliberation that he was reminded of the eating scene in Tom Jones. Junior was accustomed to having women seduce him. His good looks were a blessing in nature. His commitment to improving his mind made him interesting. Most important, from the books of Caesar's Ed, he had learned how to be irresistibly charming. And although he wasn't a braggart in these matters, never one to participate in locker room boasting, he was confident that he always gave the ladies more satisfactory service than they had ever received from other men. Perhaps word of his physical gifts and his prowess to reach Victoria. Women talked about such things amongst themselves, perhaps even more than men did. Considering his various pains and his exhaustion, Junior was somewhat surprised that this lovely nurse, with her seductive spoon technique, was able to arouse him. Though currently in no condition for romance, he was definitely interested in the future liaison. He wondered about the etiquette of just a little reciprocal flirtation when his dead wife was not even yet in the ground. He didn't wish to appear to be a lout. He wanted Victoria to think well of him. There must be a charming and civilized approach that would be proper, even elegant, but will leave no doubt in her mind that she made him hot. Careful. Vanadian will find out. Regardless of the subtlety and dignity with which Junior responded to Victoria, Thomas Vanadian will learn of his erotic interests. Somehow. Some way. Victoria would not wish to testify as to the immediate and electrifying erotic attraction between her and Junior. Would not want to help the authorities put him in prison, where her passion for him would go unfulfilled. But Vanadian would smell out her secret and compel her to take the witness stand. Junior must say nothing that could be quoted to a jury. He must not even allow himself as much as a lascivious wink or a quick caress of Victoria's hand. The nurse gave him another loving spoonful. Without a word, without daring to meet her eyes and exchange a meaningful look, Junior accepted the oval of ice in the same spirit with which this lovely woman offered it. He trapped the bowl of the spoon in his mouth for a long moment, so she could not easily remove it. And closing his eyes, he groaned with pleasure. As if the ice were a morsel of ambrosia, the food of the gods, as if it was a spoonful of nurse herself that he was savoring. When at last he released the spoon, he did so with an encircling and suggestive lick, and then licked his lips too, when the cold still slipped free of them. Opening his eyes, still not daring to meet Victoria's gaze, Junior knew she had registered and properly interpreted his response to her seductive spooning. She had frozen, the utensil in midair, and her breath had caught in her throat. She was thrilled. Neither of them needed to confirm their mutual attraction with even so much as an additional nod or a smile. Victoria knew, as he did, that their time would come. When all this current unpleasantness was behind them, when vanadium had been thwarted, when all suspicion had been forever laid to rest, they could be patient. Their self-denial and sweet anticipation ensured that their lovemaking, when at last they were able to indulge, would be shattering in its intensity, like the coupling of mortals raised to the status of demigods by virtue of their passion, its power, and purity. He had recently learned about the demigods of classic mythology in one of the selections from the Book of the Month Club. When Victoria finally calmed her racing heart, she returned the spoon to the tray on the nightstand, stopped at the carafe, and said, That's enough for now, Mr. Kane. In your condition, even too much melted ice might trigger renewed vomiting.
Junior was impressed and delighted by her clever assumption of a strictly professional voice and demeanor, which conventionally masked her intense desire. Sweet Victoria was a worthy co-conspirator. Thank you, Nurse Bressler, he said most solemnly, matching her tone, barely able to control the urge to glance at her, smile, and give her another preview of his quick, pink tongue. I'll have another nurse look in on you from time to time. Now that neither of them had a doubt that the other shared the same need and that eventually they would satisfy each other, Victoria was opting for discretion. Wise woman. I understand, he said. You need to rest, she advised, turning away from the bed. Yes, he suspected that he would require a great deal of rest to prepare himself for this vixen. Even in her loose white uniform and stodgy rubber-soled shoes, she was an incomparably erotic figure. She would be a lioness in bed. After Victoria had departed, Junior lay smiling at the ceiling, floating on Valium and desire. And vanity. In this case, he was sure the vanity was not a fault, not the result of a swollen ego, but merely healthy self-esteem. That he was irresistible to women wasn't simply his biased opinion, but an observable and undeniable fact, like gravity or the order in which the planets revolved around the sun. He was, admittedly, surprised that Nurse Bressel was strongly compelled to come on to him, even though she had read his patient file and knew that he had recently been a veritable geyser and noxious spew. And during the violent seizure in the ambulance, he had also lost control of bladder and bowels, and that he might at any moment suffer an explosive relapse. This was a remarkable testament to the animal lust he inspired without even trying, to the powerful male magnetism that was as much a part of him as his thick blonde hair. Chapter 16 Agnes, from a dream of unbearable loss, woke with warm tears on her face. The hospital was drowned in the bottomless silence that fills places of human habitation only in the few hours before dawn, when the needs and hungers and fears of one day are forgotten, and those of the next are not yet acknowledged, when our flailing species briefly floats insensate between one desperate swim and another. The upper end of the bed was elevated. Otherwise, Agnes would not have been able to see the room, for she was too weak to raise her head from the pillows. Shadows still perched throughout most of the room. They no longer reminded her of roosting birds, but of a featherless flock, leathery of wing and red of eye, with the taste of unspeakable feasts. The only light came from a reading lamp. An adjustable brass shade directed the light down onto a chair. Agnes was so weary, her eyes so sore and grainy, that even this soft radiance stung. She almost closed her eyes and gave herself to sleep again, that little brother of death, which is now her only solace. What she saw in the lamplight, however, compelled her attention. The nurse was gone, but Maria remained in attendance. She was in the vinyl and stainless steel armchair, busy at some task in the amber glow of the lamp. You should be with your children, Agnes worried. Maria looked up. My babies are seated with my sister. Why are you here? Where else I should be and for why? I watch you over. As the tears cleared from Agnes's eyes, she saw that Maria was sewing. A shopping bag stood to one side of the chair, and on the other side, open on the floor, a case contained spools of threads, needles, a pincushion, a pair of scissors, and other supplies of a seamstress's trade. Maria was hand-repairing some of Joey's clothes, which Agnes had meticulously damaged earlier in the day. Maria? Okay. You don't need to. To what? to fix those clothes anymore. I fix, she insisted. You know about Joey, Agnes asked, her voice thickening so much in the name of her husband that the two syllables almost stuck unspoken in her throat. I know. Then why? The needle danced in her nimble fingers. I fix not for the better English anymore. Now I fix for Mr. Lampion only. But he's gone. Maria said nothing, working busily, but Agnes recognized that special silence in which difficult words were sought and laboriously stitched together. Finally, with a motion so intense that it nearly made speech impossible, Maria said, It is the only thing I can do for him now, for you. I be nobody, not able to fix nothing important, but I fix this. 
I fix this. Agnes could not bear to watch Maria sewing. The light no longer stung, but her new future, which would begin to come into view with the sharpest pins and needles, sheer torture to her eyes. She slept a while, waking to a prayer spoken softly but fervently in Spanish. Maria stood at the bedside, leaning with her forearms against the railing. A silver and onyx rosary tightly wrapped her small brown hands, although she was not counting the beads or murmuring Hail Marys. Her prayer was for Agnes's baby. Gradually, Agnes realized that this was not a prayer for the soul of a deceased infant, but for the survival of one still alive. Her strength was a strength of stones, only in the sense that she felt as immovable as rock. Yet she found the resource to raise one arm, to place her left hand over Maria's bee-tangled fingers. But the baby's dead. Senor Olympian, no, Maria was surprised. Muy infermo, but not dead. Very ill. Very ill, but not dead. Agnes remembered the blood, the awful red flood, excruciating pain in such fearsome crimson torrents. She thought her baby had entered the world stillborn on the tide of its own blood and hers. Is it a boy? she asked. Yes, senora. A fine boy. Bartholomew, Agnes said. Maria frowned. What is this you say? His name. She tightened her hand on Maria's. I want to see him. Muy infermo. They have kept him like the chicken egg. Like the chicken egg. As weary as she was, Agnes could not at once puzzle out the meaning of those four words. Then, oh, he's in an incubator. Such eyes. Agnes said, Kay? Angels must to have eyes so beautiful. Letting go of Maria, lowering her hand to her heart, Agnes said, I want to see him. After making the sign of the cross, Maria said, They must to have kept him in the incubator until he's not dangerous. When the nurse comes, I will make her to tell me when the baby is to be safe. But I can't be leave you. I watch. I watch over. Closing her eyes, Agnes whispered, Bartholomew, in a reverent voice full of wonder, full of awe. In spite of Agnes's qualified joy, she could not stay afloat on the river of sleep from which she had so recently risen. This time, however, she sank into its deeper currents with new hope, and with this magical name, was scintillated in her mind on both sides of consciousness. Bartholomew. As the hospital room and Maria faded from her awareness, and also Bartholomew in her dreams, the name staved off nightmares. Bartholomew. The name sustained her. Chapter 17 As greasy with fierce sweat as a pig on a slaughterhouse ramp, Junior woke from a nightmare that he could not remember. Something was reaching for him. That's all he could recall, hands clutching at him out of the dark. And then he was awake, wheezing. Night still pressed the glass beyond the Venetian blind. The pharmacy lamp in the corner was aglow, but the chair that had been beside it was no longer there. It had been moved closer to Junior's bed. Vanadium sat in the chair, watching. With the perfect control of a sleight-of-hand artist, he turned a quarter end over end across the knuckles of his right hand, palmed it with his thumb, caused it to reappear at his little finger, rolled it across the knuckles again, ceaselessly. The bedside clock read 4.37 a.m. The detective seemed never to sleep. There's a fine George and Ira Gershwin song called Someone to Watch Over Me. You ever hear it, Enoch? I'm that someone for you. Although not, of course, in a romantic sense. Who? Who are you? Junior rasped, still badly rattled by the same nightmare and by Vanadium's presence, but quick-witted enough to stay within the clueless character that he had been playing. Instead of answering the question, meaning to imply that he believed Junior was already aware of the facts, Thomas Vanadium said, I was able to get a warrant to search your house. Junior thought this must be a trick. No hard evidence existed to indicate that Naomi had died at the hands of another, rather than by accident. Vanadium's hunch, more accurately, his sick obsession, was not sufficient reason for any court to issue a search warrant. Unfortunately, some judges were pushovers in such matters, if not to say corrupt. And Vanadium, 
fancying himself an avenging angel, was surely capable of lying to the court to finesse a warrant where none was justified. I don't... I don't understand. Blinking sleepily, pretending to still be thick-headed from tranquilizing whatever other drugs that were dripping into his veins, Junior was pleased by the note of perplexity in his hoarse voice, although he knew that even an Oscar-caliber performance would not win over this critic. Knuckle over knuckle, snared in the web of thumb and forefinger, vanishing into the purse of the palm, secretly traversing the hand, reappearing, knuckle over knuckle, the coin glimmered as it turned. Do you have insurance? asked Vanadium. Sure, Blue Shield, Junior answered at once. A dry laugh escaped the detective, but it had none of the warmth of most people's laughter. You're not bad, Enoch. You're just not as good as you think you are. Excuse me? I meant life insurance, as you well know. Well, I have a small policy. It's a benefit that comes with my job at the rehab hospital. Why? What on earth is this about? One of the things I was searching for in your house was a life insurance policy on your wife. I didn't find one. Didn't find any cancelable checks for the premium either. Hoping to play a befuddlement a while longer, Junior wiped his face with one hand as it pulled off cobwebs. Did you say you were in my house? Did you know your wife kept a diary? Yeah, sure. A new one every year, since she was just 10 years old. Did you ever read it? Of course not. This was absolutely true, which allowed Junior to meet Vanadium's eyes forthrightly and to swell with righteousness as he answered the question. Why not? That would be wrong. A diary's private. He supposed that to a detective nothing was sacred, but he was nonetheless a little shocked that Vanadium needed to ask that question. The detective kept turning the quarter without hesitation. She was a very sweet girl. Very romantic. Her diary's full of rhapsodies about married life. About you. She thought you were the finest man she'd ever known and the perfect husband. Junior Kane felt as if his heart had been lanced by a needle so thin that the muscle still contracted rhythmically but painfully around it. She did? She wrote that? Sometimes she wrote little paragraphs of God, very touching and humble notes of gratitude, thanking him for bringing you into her life. Although Junior was free of the superstitions that Naomi, in her innocence and sentimentality, had embraced, he wept without pretense. He was filled with bitter remorse for having suspected Naomi of poisoning his cheese sandwich or his apricots. She had in fact adored him, as he had always believed. She would have never lifted a hand against him, ever. Dear Naomi would have died for him. In fact, she had. The coin stopped turning, pinched flat between the knuckles of the cop's middle and ring fingers. He retrieved a box of Kleenex from the nightstand and offered it to the suspect. Because Junior's right arm was encumbered by the bracing board with the intravenous needle, he tugged a mass of tissues from the box with his left hand. After the detective returned the box to the nightstand, the coin began to turn again. As Junior blew his nose and blotted his eyes, Vanadium said, I believe you actually loved her in some strange way. Loved her? Of course I loved her. Naomi was beautiful and so kind and, and funny. She was the best. The best thing that ever happened to me. Vanadium flipped the quarter into the air, caught it in his left hand, and proceeded to turn it across his knuckles as swiftly and smoothly as he had with his right hand. This ambidextrous display sent a chill through Junior for reasons that he could not entirely analyze. Any amateur magician, indeed anyone willing to practice enough hours, magician or not, could master this trick. It was mere skill, not sorcery. What was your motive, Enoch? My what? You appear not to have had one. Some self-interest being served. If there's an insurance policy, we'll track it down, and you'll fry like bacon on a hot skillet. As usual, the cause of voice was flat, a drone. He had delivered not an emotional threat, but a quiet promise. Widening his eyes in calculated surprise, Junior said, Are you a police officer? The detective smiled. This was an anaconda smile, inspired by the contemplation of merciless strangulation. 
Before you woke, you were dreaming, weren't you? A nightmare, apparently. This sudden turn in the interrogation unnerved Junior. Vanadium had a talent for keeping a suspect off balance. A conversation with him was like a scene out of a movie about Robin Hood, a battle with cudgels on a slippery log bridge over a river. Yes, I, I'm still soaked with sweat. What were you dreaming about, Enoch? No one could put him in prison because of his dreams. I, I can't remember. Those are the worst when you're not able to remember them, don't, don't you think? They're always so silly when you can recall the details. When you draw a blank, they seem more threatening. You spoke a name in your sleep. More likely than not, this is a lie, and the detective was setting him up. Suddenly, Junior wished that he had denied dreaming. Vanadium said, Bartholomew. Junior blinked and dared not speak because he didn't know any Bartholomew, and he was certain the cop was weaving an elaborate web of deceit, setting a trap. Why would he have spoken a name that meant nothing to him? Who is Bartholomew? Vanadium asked. Junior shook his head. You spoke that name twice. I don't know anyone named Bartholomew. He decided that the truth in this instance could not harm him. You sounded as though you were in a lot of distress. You were frightened of this Bartholomew. The ball of sodden Kleenex was gripped so tightly in Junior's left hand that had his carbon content been higher, it would have been compacted into a diamond. He saw Vanadium staring at his clenched fists and sharp white knuckles. He tried to ease up on the wad of Kleenex, but he wasn't able to relent. Inexplicably, each repetition of Bartholomew heightened Junior's anxiety. The name resonated not just in his ear, but in his blood and bones, in body and mind, as if he were a great bronze bell and Bartholomew the Clapper. Maybe he's a character I saw in a movie or read in a novel. I'm a member of the Book of the Month Club. I'm, I'm always reading one thing or another. I don't remember a character named Bar Bartholomew, but maybe I read the book long ago. Junior realized he was on the verge of babbling, and with an effort, he silenced himself, rising slowly like the blade in the hands of an axe murderer as deliberate as an accountant. Thomas Vanadium's gaze arched from Junior's clenched fist to his face. The port wine birthmark appeared to be darker than before and differently modeled than he remembered it. If the policeman's gray eyes had earlier been as hard as nail heads, they were now points, and behind them was willpower strong enough to drive spikes through stone. My God, Junior said, pretending that his befuddlement had faded and that his mind had just now clarified. You think Naomi was murdered, don't you? Instead of engaging in the confrontation for which he had been pressing ever since his first visit, Vanadium surprised Junior by breaking eye contact, turning from the bed and crossing from the room to the door. It's even worse, Junior rasped, convinced that he was losing some indefinable advantage if the cop left without playing out this moment as it would normally unfold in an intellectual television crime drama like Perry Mason or Peter Gunn. Stopping at the door without opening it, Vanadium turned to stare at Junior, but said nothing. Leavening his tortured voice as best he could with shock and hurt, as though deeply wounded by the need to speak these words, Junior Kane said, You... You think I killed her, don't you? That's crazy. The detective raised both hands, palms towards Junior, fingers spread. After a pause, he showed the back of his hands, and then the palms once more. For a moment, Junior was mystified. Vanadium's movements had the quality of a ritual, vaguely reminiscent of a priest raising high the Eucharist. Mystification slowly gave way to understanding. The quarter was gone. Junior hadn't noticed when the detective stopped turning the coin across his knuckles. Perhaps you could pull it from your ear, Thomas Vanadium suggested. Junior actually raised his trembling left hand to his ear, expecting to find the quarter tucked in the auditory canal held between the tragus and the antitragus, waiting to be plucked with a flourish. His ear was empty. Wrong hand, Vanadium advised. Strapped to the bracing board, Simeon mobilized to prevent the accidental dislodgement of intravenous feed. Junior's right arm felt half numb, stiff with disuse. The supplicant hand seemed not to be a part of him. As pale and exotic as a sea anemone, 
The long fingers curled as tentacles curl, artfully around an anemone's mouth, poised a snare, lazily but relentlessly, any passing prize. Like a disc fish with silvery scales, the coin lay in the cup of Junior's palm, directly over his lifeline. Disbelieving his eyes, Junior reached across his body with his left hand and picked up the quarter. Although it had been lying in his right hand, it was cold, icy. Miracles being non-existent, the materialization of the quarter in his hand was nevertheless impossible. Vanadium had stood only at the left side of the bed. He had never leaned over Junior or reached across him. Yet the coin was as real as dead Naomi broken on the stony ridge at the foot of the fire tower. In a state of wonderment that was laced with dread rather than delight, he looked up from the quarter, seeking an explanation for vanadium, expecting to see that anaconda smile. The door was falling shut. With no more sound than the day makes when it turns to night, the detective had gone. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, Lee Review on Spotify, Lee Review on uh, Podchaser, copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts, copy and paste that into Good Pods. Um, you could donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast uh, or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast on the Good Pods app. There's a tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my now that you slipped.